Take your Bibles and turn to the pastoral epistles. We're looking at 1 Timothy, and we will be in 2 Timothy and Titus, uh, sort of spanning a theme throughout the epistles over the next couple weeks. Uh, We're on part four of spiritual leadership, and this morning we're talking about the leadership of the shepherd as he wields the shepherd's uh, staff and crook, which is the word of God. Uh, As I talk to you, I want to just sort of take a moment and go heart to heart here. I am speaking to spiritual leadership and specifically regarding pastors, overseers, elders. But listen, men, you're all shepherds. You're all spiritual leaders in one form or another, shepherding your own heart, shepherding your child's heart, your children's hearts, your wife's wife's heart. Hopefully just one wife. Anyway, um, But being that example, women, you are a spiritual leader of women, a discipler, a teacher, a shepherd to your children. Let me go one level deeper. A lot of children just left. Let me say this. Older brothers, older sisters, you are a shepherd to your siblings. And sometimes it's the younger even ministering to the older. But you are. You are an extremely invaluable influence in the life of a sibling. Grandmas, grandpas, great-grandparents, you are shepherding with the word of God in the lives of people if you're being faithful. And I just want to commend to you that this is the power tool that you are to use to ward off the onslaughts of Satan that is a roaring lion. He's a thief that comes in to still steal, kill, and destroy. He's a, he's a roaring lion in the sense that he wants to eviscerate you. He wants to destroy your life. It's so easy to check out and say, well, Satan's for the Bible stories, or Satan is for the extreme occultists, or Satan is for the person who's involved in uh, Wiccan or you know, Wicca, or Satan is involved in you know, different um, extreme other religions, but he's not involved in my life. I'm sort of safe and happy in Christendom, but I want to just warn you against that mindset and say with all honesty and with all heart as a shepherd that Satan is after you and me. He wants to mess your life up, and we're going to talk about this from Scripture. And he wants to do it in subtle ways, not overt ways. He wants to slip in behind the scenes into your life. I mean, these pictures of Satan where he's the roaring lion, the thief, the the father of lies, the, the sort of despot God, lower G God of this world who's influencing this satanic uh, leader, this, this fallen angel over a third of the fallen angels, this, this foe of God, this tempter of Christ, this serpent that slipped in and, and plunged us into sin and death, that figure is an angel of light who has a goal to slip in behind the scenes and just turn the heat down in your spiritual life. Satan is very satisfied, my friends, to make you into a happy American who lives in a world that's, um, by history and heritage, been 
um, Christian or Christianized and just to sort of make you religious. Satan wants to make you a Pharisee. He wants to make you someone who's happy within just following through on some simple steps in terms of being religious. And he wants to keep you from the battle. He wants to keep you from growing. He wants to keep you from shepherding your children. He wants to keep you from shepherding your wife. He wants to keep you women from having an effective, vital, godly, difference-making ministry. He is doing that. He's active, and he's, he's pursuing of these things. He's the defeated foe, kind of like if you'll just, you know, indulge me here with a spontaneous illustration. But do you remember in the Lord of the Rings where Gandalf is standing there, you know, at the bridge with the big standoff with the dragon thing that's coming? I didn't prepare for this. The dragon thing, okay, anyway, whatever. Anyway, he may, takes the stand, but, you know, he, he wants to wrap the tail around and, and drag you down to hell. I mean, Satan is the one where if you're sort of... M- almost converted the seed is sown satan's the vulture that comes up and snatches the seed away okay he's violent and vicious and awful and he's the angel of light and he's the judas iscariot you know sort of figure in the apostles that that looks like an apostle that's performing miracles and who's duplicitous on the inside and wants to hurt the kingdom of god from the inside out that's the foe that we're talking about. It, all this sort of shepherding and, and, and protective uh, thinking brought a little bit of a story to my mind, and I've shared it before, but I'll share it again. Maybe you haven't heard it. It was when my wife and I, um, we, we were on to our second home. You know, you kind of get married, you, you get into an apartment oftentimes, and then we, we bought a house, flipped the house, um, got a down payment, and built a house. So we had a house built, and we had our little kids, you know, that our growing family, but we had no blinds downstairs. And so 12, it was 12 a.m., and I'm asleep, but I'm asleep, but the dad radar is going, right? You know, and I, I, I'm hearing things, but I'm asleep. And we had no blinds, so our, our house felt very vulnerable and was very vulnerable. It was on a busy street. And at 12 midnight, it was just at the door, ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, ding dong. And so I'm half awake or half asleep, flying down the stairs in my pajamas, screaming at the top of my lungs at the door, get away from the door, get away from the door. I mean, this is just godliness on fire, right? Right, I, honey, I was screaming, right? Yeah, get away from the door. You know, God forbid it be someone from the church in crisis, you know, get away, because I'm sure that this is breaking and entering, right? And, and the person didn't leave. And I looked and, you know, we had the sort of side glass next to the door and I see a face in the window and I think I recognize the face. I'm like, oh, I, I did premarital counseling with her and maybe they're having trouble in the marriage and I am just worthless. And so I'm walking back up the stairs and Judy's coming down and she's put her bathrobe on. I'm like, okay, you know, here she is. It's such and such. So Judy opens the door, and instead of it being this sweet, young, college, you know, gal, college-age gal, it's this rather large, formidable, strong, you know, dreadlocked, you know, nothing against dreadlocks, but I mean, it was just, she was dressed in full gang, gang um, regalia and, and was on drugs. And 
Judy shuts the door <laughs> and locks it and says, whoa. And so I come back downstairs and suddenly we're having a counseling session through the window, through the glass. And instead of the gospel tipping towards, oh, you know, we need to give our enemy a cup of cold water and just come on in and we're going to just have, you know, evangelism time. No, it's, it's midnight. It's dark. She's stoned. She's not leaving and we're saying what do you want she says i want directions we say there it is there's a direction she doesn't go anywhere and just stands there suddenly it's now we're back into it's on time and it's leave go away we want you to leave right now and finally she leaves thankfully i go upstairs and so for the rest of the the few hours i'm trying to sleep i'm hearing the ice you know drop in the freezer i'm up you know what's going on and it was probably about an hour or so later and i look out through the blinds and across the street in this sort of you know we, we lived in a little bit of a almost farmland area across the street was i mean we anyway don't worry about it, it was just it wasn't your typical neighborhood where the house across the street was sort of embedded in some trees but there she is and she's casing that house with her cell phone as a flashlight looking in all the windows downstairs so now it's 911 and you call the cops and so then I'm on dispatch and the police officer's going in front of the house and missing that person because she saw the cop and hid in a little alcove hiding in the shadows selfishly I want her to be picked up and taken away because I don't want to have to think about her all night. And so what do I do? Well, I'm saying, dispatch, go, go back, you know, send the police officer back. And then dispatch is saying, whatever you do, don't leave the house because it could be a gang or whatever. And I'm out the front door, you know, and I'm, which is dumb. And I know that there are police officers here going, you know, like this. But, I, you know, I'm waving him down and, and saying, she's right there. And so this police officer waited for backup and apprehended her questioned her and she obviously needed to go and so she went away well that is that's a display of the protection idea here that shepherds should have um she was obviously overtly on the attack for a breaking and entering i mean she was she was out to get inside the house especially if people weren't there for some reason or another that was what i'm surmising but i just want to show you that from scripture you know satan is that bold and that aggressive but he's subtle and he's not going to ring the doorbell like that he's going to come in through the back door you know a lot of times they say if somebody's ringing on the front door there's somebody standing at the back door well satan's the one at the back door that wants to slip in to your life and into your heart and mess you up and and i thought about satan's attacks this week and thought you know i have given a lot of room in my own spiritual life where i've been sort of lazy regarding thinking about how aggressive satan is in his temptations in other words satan is tempting christians all the time all the time he is a tempter he's a liar He's out to lie to you and incite you to sin. Like a lot of times I think in terms of my own sin and my own failings, my own flesh, but I don't think in terms of a living, active opponent that is trying to destroy me. It's easy to sort of to let that idea go. But the more I thought about the way that Satan tempts and the three basic ways he tempts, he's tempting all the time. And I want to show you this from Scripture. First of all, um, you can turn there to 1 John 2.15. 
um, we're supposed to avoid the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. 2.16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, who's in charge of the world? Satan. Satan is mentioned in verse 13, just two verses up, that young men, godly ones, have overcome the evil one. In other words, they're, they're understanding these schemes. And then if you go down, um, you know, one verse or a couple verses later, verse 18 you have a mention of antichrists that have come into the world. Look, Satan is trying to target you in terms of three things, your flesh, your eyes, and your pride all the time. So if you just think anytime my physical appetites are aroused, Satan is probably involved in that. Anytime that you are sinfully enticed regarding your flesh, anytime you are enticed to think, you know, I, I want more than I have. I'm entitled to more than I have. Anytime that's running through your mind, anytime you're going, you know, I'm not satisfied and content with my, my needs being met. I need to get more, and that's going to make me happy. That could be a satanic temptation and probably is. Anytime you are tempted to do this one, look at this. I, I want to be in control of my life, my circumstances, the outcomes, Um, I want to be in control of my spiritual life. Hey, I'm going to kick up the spiritual disciplines to get this thing licked. Um, That could be a satanic temptation for you to be in Pharisee School 101. That's what Satan is up to. And our media culture splashes these three temptations around at us all the time. Tabloids, media, video. It's always saying, look, your flesh, if, if you had that person, you'd be happy. You're with this person, but you need that person, and that's what's going to make you happy, right? That's always a subtext. It's always around. You need your flesh fed and fulfilled um, with that other person. Second, money. You know, there's always the temptation, look, you can make more money. You can have more. You can, you can arrive at more with a quick get-rich-quick scheme. That's going to make you happy. Uh, workaholism is, is rampant in our culture. Work more. Do more. Get more, and you'll be more happy. Third, you can be in control of your life. I mean, how psychotherapy-ized is our culture today? You know, it's, it's this idea that, listen, you can figure it out. You can come to have peace in your heart. If you listen to this, you know, person on TV or this self-help book, if you read this, if you go to this motivational speech, you will be happy. Satan is behind the scenes working this world system to take your eyes off of Christ so that you won't be happy. You say, really, is it that, is it really those three things? Is it that simple? Let's go back to the first temptation in the garden. Genesis chapter three, gotta go there. Genesis three, this is Eve, Adam standing by. Verse one, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. That the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Um, Notice he's going to combat the word of God right here. That's what Satan does. He says, you know, what God is saying is false and what he's saying is true. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, 
you will not surely die. In other words, whatever God said is a lie, and I'm telling you the truth. Don't believe God's word, believe my word. This is simple temptation of Satan. He's crafty. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's that? You know what that is? That's the boastful pride of life. You can be like God. In your religion, you can be like God. You don't need God. You just need to arrive at another level of control. You can control your circumstances, right? I know none of you have ever been tempted along the lines of trying to be in control of your life. But I want you to invite, invite you into my world and say that is a real temptation, right? You, I mean, it is. All right, next, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it's a temptation to the flesh, to appetite, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. I think that this could be, you know, the temptation of, look, I'm entitled to this. I desire this. This is going to fill me up like people pursue money and riches and wealth thinking they'll be fine. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The eyes of both were opened. Now, that's the first Adam falling to sin. Now, let's go to Matthew 4, where the second round of temptation at this level hit our world when Christ was here on the earth 2,000 years ago. Matthew chapter 4. This is the temptations of Christ but these temptations, though they are the same ones given by Satan that he gave to Adam and Eve, the second Adam did not fall. And Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is Matthew 4.1. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. All right, listen, I know you've heard of these temptations, but just think with me for a moment. 40 days, no food. Jesus, fully man, he's hungry. He's hungry for real. And Jesus, being fully God, can for real change stones to bread right there and then, right then and there. And he doesn't, but that is a, a major temptation from the outside in. Jesus didn't sin. He didn't have any sin in his heart, but it was an external temptation upon the sinless Son of God. And think about it in this way. Look how subtle this is. Satan's just going, you're hungry? You've been fasting? He's not contradicting the fast. He's not saying that Jesus did anything wrong. He, Jesus, you know, you, you've done this for God. You've given him 40 days. You're following through. You're faithful. It's hot here. It's desert. It's high country. You're starving. Perhaps he's saying, well, God's not providing for you. That's what he, you know, said to Eve. Look, he's withholding something from you. Turn it to bread. Eat. Can't you just eat? What does Jesus turn to? He turns to the word of God. That's amazing. Jesus, who is the word, goes to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, and quotes it back to Satan. This is the Machaira sword of the spirit in Ephesians 6. This is the same weapon. We've got the same slingshot as the shepherd that Jesus had. We have the same sword. We've got the same shepherd's crook. The word of God. And that's what Jesus uses. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Okay, that was the lust of the flesh temptation, um, stones to bread. Here's the boastful pride of life, or you can be in control temptation. Took him to the top of the temple, verse 6. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. And here's Satan using scripture to twist. Okay, Jesus, you're going to use scripture. I can use scripture. So Satan's using scripture. He's good at what he does. He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Hey, look, Jesus, I, you're God. You can, these, these verses are for you. Throw yourself off the temple. I mean, do you see how subtle that is? Satan's not saying, look, become one of my angels here, you know, um, you know, do something externally. No, just, just be yourself, Jesus. Take it away. Be God here and jump off the top of the temple. That's the subtle attacks of Satan that he will wage against you. Be religious. Take matters into your own hands. Take over. Even use scripture to do it. That's what he's doing here. And Jesus said to him, and I love it, you can't pit scripture against scripture. People will try that, but you can't do it. There's always the balance. There was a right way to obey the command and enjoy the blessing um, of the scripture that Satan was quoting, and Satan was wrongly using it. And so here, Jesus brings the balance. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So again, the third temptation, this is the lust of the eyes. And again, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these I will give you. He showed them. He somehow gave a, a spiritual movie screen projection of all the kingdoms of the world. Now, does Jesus own it all? Yes. But he wasn't supposed to own it under Satan. So Jesus again corrects the wolf sends him off by saying, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. Remember, resist the devil. How did Jesus resist the devil? With the truth, with this, with this as his sword, as the shepherd's crook. He said, be, be gone, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The devil left. Well, these three temptations i the reason i'm marking them out for you is once you dial into these categories lust of flesh lust of the eyes boastful pride of life as i've listed them in your outline if you have it the subtle lie of control i can be in control of my life i can be like god that's one um money money will buy my happiness i really can have it all that's subtle lie number two and subtle lie number three sensuality if i get that person other than my spouse then i'll be happy once you have these categories, guess what? You're armed to at least know what Satan's going to try against you. And then you can, Lord willing, turn to Scripture and the gospel to send Satan away. One more place is before we go to the pastorals. Second uh, Peter. This is just to show you that this isn't just an Old Testament thing that happened in Genesis or a gospel thing that happened to Christ, but this is happening live in the church now, and it happens through false teachers, people who get a badge to teach 
and begin to use these three temptations, these three sort of venues of lust, they're false teachers. Second Peter chapter 2, look at verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery, lust of the flesh, insatiable for sin. They, they don't get satisfied. They're just always hungry for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. There's the lust of the eyes, the money. They entice unsteady souls. They, they're these proud, arrogant teachers. Those are the ones you have to be on alert regarding the false shepherds. So we all have to, at some level, be shepherds. And then we need specifically designated pastor, overseer, elder, shepherds to shepherd all of us as sheep from people who will harm you spiritually. Okay, back to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, where does this all begin? It all begins in one qualification that I purposely skipped over. I was asked, you know, did you forget to bring up, you know, this phrase regarding a teacher? We, we went through 13 character qualities or qualifications of a shepherd. And then I said there were 16 of them. Well, really, the last three are boiled down with this one idea. And it is the overseer from verse 1 of chapter 3 and then look down at verse 2 has to be able to teach able to teach this is this is the sword of the spirit for the shepherd now again all of us should wield the word of god ephesians 6 says right to fight off the enemy but pastors overseers elders are to be known as men of the book people who love the bible understand the bible get their answers from the Bible, and can smell a smoking gun when it comes into the room, something that's off, something that's errant, something that's going to entice or ensnare someone in terms of the lust of flesh, the lust of the eyes, but also pride of life. Here's a big idea of the sermon. The shepherds need to be able to ward off the enemy in terms of the attacks that come. The attacks are coming. They're always here. They're always happening. Satan's at large. He's, he's on the attack. And the shepherd is supposed to wield the word of God as the weaponry to ward off the wolves. They come in as wolves in sheep's clothing. You know that metaphor from Acts 20. They come in in subtle ways as the angel of light, and they're out to mess you up or mess our church up. And so the answer, you got to be able to teach. It's not just... A spiritual leader isn't someone who can just pull it off. Someone who can just show up and, and, and work through a curriculum. You got to be someone who is, literally, it's an adjective use here. It's you're known as a Bible teacher. That's an elder. Known by teaching the word of God. That's what it is. And how does that play out? Well, let's look at the first temptation. The first temptation that I want to talk about is control or being religious. And I find this in 1 Timothy 4. Now, this theme of false teachers coming into the church and trying to mess it up, this is all through 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And if you take these three books of the Bible as the pastoral epistles or as the blueprint for how God is building his church, then you have to take the theme of shepherds warding off false teachers and false teaching. You've got to take that very seriously. 
This is the manual for how God is building his church. And a big part of fighting the good fight of faith is protecting the purity of the gospel and correcting and even disciplining opponents who come against the truth. It's a big theme in the pastoral epistles. Look at verse 1, chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Okay, the picture here is um, it's the last days. When is the last days? Well, that clock um, button was started when Jesus came. So when the Messiah came, we're in the last days. So 2,000 years so far, we're in the last days. And the Spirit expressly says that there's going to be false teachers who come in with false teaching. Probably Paul is thinking back to Jesus' words in Matthew 24. Jesus expressly and explicitly taught that false teachers were going to come in. So these last days are now, and it's doctrines or teachings of demons come in. Again, the teachings are, are subtle. Nobody's asking you to, to, to dress out in satanic garb and, and join the occult. It's more insidious than that. Uh, in this version of false teaching, the false teacher wants you to become religious, to just turn the heat down, kind of pull over and park and be um, a living Pharisee. Be thankful that you live in sort of a Christianized country that is becoming less and less known for Christian values. And, and yet, you know, I'm comfortable and kind of just off on the sidelines. That's what Satan wants to do for you. How does he do it? Look at verse three. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created. Um, here's the way he might lie first and foremost. He might say something like this. Um, if you aren't married yet, you have more time to serve the Lord, which 1 Corinthians 7 says, you're not divided in your heart in terms of duties. So as a single man or woman, you're more godly than other people who are chasing kids or working through marriage issues. Right? I mean, a false teacher, someone who's seared in his conscience, someone who's duplicitous, someone who's not sincere, verse 2, someone who's just hard-hearted and checked out, but he's telling the flock, hey, you're more spiritual than somebody else. Anytime, or you can reverse it. Someone say, well, I'm married, I've got kids, so I'm more godly. Or I'm more godly because, fill in the blank, I did this, I achieved that. Etc. Etc. I've been through this. You haven't been through that. That's a lie of Satan. Second lie is abstinence of food. You know, I eat this. I don't eat this. I choose this program. I don't choose this program. So I am now more spiritual than you. I have this preference of entertainment that that I do or that I don't do. It's the stronger what brother, weaker brother thing of Romans 14. I eat meat sacrificed to idols. I don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, so I'm more spiritual one side or the other. It's, it's the neutral issues that people exalt in terms of their own religious practices that create this temptation where someone says, I'm better. And so Paul is saying, no, that, that is false teaching. And how do you solve this? And I love the simplicity of this. I never saw this until I studied it this week. Verse four, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. 
What is Paul saying to do here? Paul is actually, I think, hearkening back to Genesis 131, which is where God looked at all of the creation before sin had injected itself into it and said, it's what? It's very good. And so the point is this, as people work through their preferences of what they're going to do or not do, whether they're going to get married or not get married, whether they're going to eat something or not eat something, whether they're going to go somewhere or not go somewhere, whatever their choices are, if it's neutral, if the Bible isn't clearly saying this is right or this is wrong, if it's gray, then you just, you make your own choices in your own heart and you worship God and you say, Lord, you created everything. Everything's good if it's a neutral thing. It's not to be rejected, and we just worship you in that, whether we do something or don't do something, and we receive it with thanksgiving. It's having the heart of worship. That's, that's how you counteract this kind of elitism or Phariseeism, potentially. All right, we've got time for one more. Temptation number two, subtle temptation number two. This is under defending sound doctrine. Um, the, the elder needs to teach God's word and the elder needs to defend sound doctrine. The first temptation is control. I can control my life with religion. I can be like God in terms of my religion. And temptation number two is money. Money. We've talked about this some. Money will buy my happiness or I can really have it all. This is First Timothy 6. First Timothy 6. Let's look at verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, this is contrary to sound doctrine, and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understanding and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining, look at this, here's the key, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. The idea here is that a false teacher will come in and say that you, if you give, you will receive back blessing in your life and you are entitled even to monetary blessing. You've heard of the health and wealth movement, right? I mean, I've talked about that quite a bit. And on a public level, there are a lot of preachers who say, look, you know, if, if you are godly enough, if you believe enough, then you're going to be healthy, happy, and wealthy. You will have a great life if you do that. Well, that's sort of a public level, and that's easier, I think, to decipher and discern and go, yeah, it's not me. It's maybe for our church. We're, we're pretty safe there, but here's the more subtle version of this temptation. The temptation would be something like this. If I give more money on Sunday mornings, then that will make me more spiritual, and I'm going to measure my spirituality in terms of how much money I give. All right, here's one step worse. It's the idea that you give and in your mind you are feeling entitled to gain power in the church according to how much you give. It's giving with strings. It's the idea that, that you, you are godly and more godly because you give. 
I, I heard it this way. When I first came here, there was a family that was leaving the church. They were sort of on their way out and they're godly family. But, but someone said of them, oh, they're leaving and that's so sad because they're such big givers. And I just thought to myself, I, that doesn't even compute. I don't even understand thinking like that. Um, it does, we give out of the overflow of what's given to us. We give because we want to be faithful givers to the Lord's work. We give, and it is a vertical effect to the Lord. It's a sweet-smelling sacrifice. We looked at it in Philippians 4. We give because the Lord has given us salvation, and we don't give out of performance. We don't give out of some sort of um, weird you know, investment strategy where you know, God's going to give you dividends back. No, you give out of the overflow of your life and your heart. That's it. And so, and so God provides, look at verse six. Really godliness with contentment is great gain. Now we're talking about spiritual gain. We do wanna give to the Lord's work and we wanna be faithful to do that, but we wanna live in a mindset where we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. You know, on Friday night, I attended a funeral. Some of you were there, it was in the chapel and really it was uh, several other churches and, and people around the community that came and celebrated um, this lady who had lived to her 90s and she'd been a godly woman and had come to Alaska I think in the 40s and she brought Bible study fellowship here and different things I mean very godly heritage godly woman um, that was being um, celebrated really the Lord was being celebrated but it was her life in Jesus that was that was a launching point to worship God in that service so that was Friday evening here and I just, I had the thought in my mind, especially with someone like her, but it never happens where you're at a funeral and someone says, you know, that person was so special here because, you know, if you were to know how much that person stored away in his or her bank account or, or bank accounts or assets that this person has, um, you would just be blown away. That's never the narrative. That's never what people are talking about. They're talking about relationships. They're talking about sacrifice. They're talking about commitments. They're talking about real things, caring about people. It's not that we shouldn't be responsible with our money and earn money. And if you don't work, you don't eat. We've got to work a job. We've got to provide. But really, we need to store up treasure in heaven. And the antidote to, to this kind of lust for money this depraved mind, this, this different doctrine where false teachers become puffed up and filled with pride and try to entice people in terms of thinking about their Christianity, in terms of getting rich or being wealthy, is this, be content. Don't, verse nine, desire to be rich and fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of, look at this, all kinds of evils. And it's the, it's the idolatry of money. It's not that you can't be wealthy. It's, it's just never being content with what God has given you. That's the problem. This one person from first hour was saying, you know, in response to this point, he saw on a study that no matter what someone's salary was, they always wanted 20% more and that would make them happy. I mean, that is idolatry. It's idolatry. You got to live within your means and, and give it away and get your heart up. Look at verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness. 
I mean, verse 10, I, you know, I want to finish that out. The craving, it causes you to wander away from the faith and be pierced through with many pangs. But as a man of God, you flee this, you pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And then verse 12, I love this. It's fight language. You're fighting this temptation. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now let's tack on um, what Paul picks back up and says at the end of the chapter. Look, turn one page over or look down in your Bibles. Look at verse 17. Paul here, I love this. He, he's affirming that there are wealthy Christians. It's not sinful to be wealthy. As for the rich, verse 17, in this present, present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to be arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Do you see that? Don't set your hopes on riches or wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now look at what you're supposed to do. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So why do you make money? You make money to free yourself up to do good things, to support good ministry, to support good investment into your family, to support, um, to sustain a life of serving Christ in your home and in your church. And then you make money so you can share it, so you can spread it around and give it to people and give it to the Lord's work. You, you give it in a way that, that causes your heart to go up. Look at verse 19. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So when you're making money and you're acquiring wealth, you're also giving it away and you're watching the Lord provide for your needs and you're providing for other people's needs and you're generous. And in your generosity, you taste and see that the Lord is good. Isn't that the way to be? That's how the, the direction is for the Christian life. You know, you can't, it's the old, you don't see a U-Haul behind the hearse. I mean, it, you really don't, you really can't take it with you. And so it's important to give it away. I, there's a parable, maybe I'll pick up on this next week, but Jesus, he very clearly in his teaching says there was a man who, who was acquiring wealth. He was filling up barns, you know, and, and he had so much that he had to create another barn and fill it up. And, and Jesus said, you fool. Don't you know that your soul is required of you this evening? You're a fool. And you should have been rich towards God. That's what matters. Fighting the temptations. You know, one last uh, quick story. I, I have to make a confession. I watch some of the cable um, Alaskan shows. I do. I do. I hope that's all right. I don't know. I, I think it's a, a trip to watch how the world is watching us up here because there are so many Alaskan reality TV shows and one of them's Wild West, Wild West Alaska. And, you know, and so Logan and I, my 12-year-old, were watching this and, and you know, it's kind of goofy, but, but kind of cool. And we, we started to get into it because it was about this lady who had a horse and a bear, a brown bear, was stalking the horse, and she kind of came aware of that. And so her ex-husband comes back, and he's going to arm her with the right-sized gun for her to be able to kill the brown bear. And so they, you know, they see where the bear has scratched off fur at a certain height and how big the bear is. And then they discover the kill that the bear had buried. And, you know, they're, they're freaking out out there. And then ultimately they set up to take the shot of the bear and, and she's unwilling to pull the trigger because the bear hadn't done anything to her. And the guy, 
um, the dude rightly lectures her to say, listen, you know, you just have to think of it this way. It's either your horse or it's the bear because the bear ultimately will kill the horse. And so the reason I bring that up is simply this. We have to take this seriously. You either fight against these temptations or they will kill you. They will either sideline you spiritually and you will be pierced through with many pangs because you've gone after pleasure. Never forget my seminary professor's words to me and to the class. He said, look, don't sacrifice your whole life, your whole family, your whole ministry for 15 minutes of pleasure. You got to shoot the bear. You got to resist the devil and he will flee from you. We got to deal seriously using the word of God with these temptations that come. Next week, we'll look at um, temptation number three and, and wrap it up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for time in your word. We thank you for this.